everybody. Welcome to another episode of Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark. I'm here with Trevor. How are you doing today, Trevor? Or how, how are you feeling, actually? I'm all right. I feel like a new man in the same body. How are you feeling? I feel like I looked up all the like the top recent Google search queries, beginning with I feel like. Ooh, and, <laughs> and what was that? Uh, <laughs> what came of that? A, a lot of them are music related. Mm, Top, I, yeah. Any guesses? Any guesses? Um, I well, first of all, it's not a James Brown song. What's "I Feel Good"? Yeah. Um, but no, I don't know. I feel like a sex machine. Like. Maybe the first uh, first result is "I feel like a woman." Shania, uh, right. Shania Twain. Yep, feel like a woman. it's an old song to be Classic. up there. But uh, second one, I, I feel like a monster. Ooh, it's, it's the song "Monster" by Skillet. I don't. I don't know what it is i think it was in the ghost rider soundtrack (laughs) but still popular enough to be up there in the google search results popularized by Ghost Rider. no better way to fame (laughs) the third one was i feel like gucci mane in 2006 nice and that's from the rapper nba young boy uh next one i feel like pablo that's kanye west Mm -hmm. uh this the uh, I guess fifth one is not music related, but I feel like it's, I feel like a failure. Wow. That's more of a life's journey kind of thing. Yeah. It's interesting that the whole world is like, it's like songs and everything that would link up. And then like the first like real thing is like, I feel like a failure. That's sad. Yeah. Next one, I feel like throwing up. Ooh. Which is uh, more of a WebMD sort of thing. Definitely. Yeah. That That's going straight to WebMD. I'll get I'll get into that a little bit later as a little clue uh, for my report. But next one, I feel like Kobe. It's another Kanye thing. Mm. And then now we have our first meme result. I feel like Chicken Tonight. <laughs> you ever heard of that? I know vaguely. I don't know my meme as well as I should. It's, ni- it's ni- 1992. Uh, well, I guess it was. A meme before memes, but in 1992, uh, the company Ragu they launched a line of simmer sauces called Chicken Tonight, nice. and the, com- the commercial went like viral again or whatever. So it's sort of like a "Where's the Beef" type thing. Yeah, yeah. And the commercial is just a bunch of random people, like a police officer and people like construction worker doing the chicken dance, being like, "I want chicken tonight. <laughs> I want chicken tonight." Nice. Um, and then. Uh, Number nine was I feel like Ricky Tikki Tavi. I don't. Mm-hmm. That was another song. And then last one, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills, which is another meme result. That's uh, well, yeah, that's Will Ferrell. Uh, yeah, Will Ferrell from uh, Oh God, it's gonna come to me. <sighs> the about Ben Stiller is a model. <laughs> getting name, old. I'm getting older. His name was Mugatu in the film. Yeah. What is the movie? Zoolander. Zoolander. Yeah. So you go, I feel like all those things at once. Hmm. The ultimate, I feel like. Yeah. So we're both still at home, like most people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do you have to use Zoom at all for your job? Like specifically mm-hmm. like video, video? Not really. Not really, no. But we have been, you know, connecting. Uh, sometimes something will call for a Zoom meeting, but very rarely. Yeah. I'm st- I'm all 100% just phone calls, no video calls. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people are using video calls right now. Um, and you know, with that, there's a lot of people 
putting their home offices and subsequently the bookshelves that are usually behind them on display. Mm -hmm. right. So that kind of leads us into another segment of whatever we call it, uh, celebrity bookworms <laughs> or celebrity readers or something. I don't know. Yes. We've done in the past, uh, kind of headlined by the most prolific reader yet of Art Garfunkel, who is yet to be surpassed, but... Yes, Art Garfunkel. No one reads more than Art <laughs> Garfunkel. Not even we read more than Art Garfunkel. Yeah. So so we've got an article here from the New York Times titled, What Do Famous People's Bookshelves Reveal? Mm. So we both kind of took a look at this. Uh, first one, I that I mean, the first one that came to me, it happens to be the first one that they listed. <laughs> was, uh, uh, actress Kate Blanchett, she has the full... 20 volume Oxford English dictionary. Not cheap. I would imagine not cheap. Yeah. Unless, unless found in some sort of estate sale or otherwise, uh, you know, otherwise procured. If you bought yeah. that new, be quite a hefty price. Yeah. And you know, those, those definitely look cool on the shelf. You know, they take a lot of room and that's kind of all they're for at this point. Right. Yeah. Like who's gonna, who's gonna, I mean, you know, maybe Kate Blanchett is uh, dedicated to being a little bit more old fashioned. Like, no, kids, don't take out your phones. We have to look up. Yeah. If, if you have a dictionary set, though, where like the first volume is AA to AH or something like that, <laughs> you're, not, like, you're not gonna use that too often. But right, it'd probably even be really just frustrating to find. Now, our with our access of information so quick, it would probably be really frustrating to find things. Yeah, but um, I was thinking about that. How you can have these twenty volume, you know, you can get those huge dictionary sets, and then you can also get like a basic, big ass dictionary, which is just one volume, you know. Mm -hmm. And then also you can get like a pocket dictionary mm -hmm. and it was making me think like, how, how do they determine what to leave out? You know, does Webster have like an ultimate list that ranks every word in the English language? Like, you know, if we're making a pocket dictionary, we can like leave out something like verisimilitude right. is like, you know, <laughs> all these vocab words and stuff like or maybe old old style words like uh i don't know they're just like lit, left out of the pocket dictionaries like do you have any inkling of what happens there like who has who decides yeah yeah or uh, how, how do they decide how is it by you know they the use or i bet you what they did like back in the day is that they took like the alphabet and they were like okay the book is going to be x long so then that means like this much material to print it like let's say that they're going to do an edition of a dictionary that's like a thousand pages yeah so then they like work backwards from like materials and stuff and then they're like then there's probably some study back from then there's probably some study where it's like okay how common is like a b c d whatever and then they limit like the amount of words that can be like used based on those like use cases yeah like you know how like the qwerty keyboard was designed based on like use yeah you yeah. know like information so then they whittle it down to that and then they're like okay there's only like 300 you know a entries or b entries so then and then it get and then law of averages from there that's what they put in okay i wonder if like someone should do a dictionary that's the opposite of that process like the rarest words <laughs> per a thousand page dictionary that's a 
probably a good idea. Um, I, I actually, I have one of those like pocket dictionaries and it's from, it's from 1951. Mm-hmm. And like on the side of it, it's like, Hey, we have many new words included such a, like I have it right here. I have the picture on my phone. We have many new words such as hassle, hydrogen bomb, cortisone, blood mobile, or lawn, and hot rod <laughs> blood mobile. <laughs> I actually learned something really interesting, sort of in this vein of um, there's another podcast much more professional than ours called it, but made by NPR called How I Made This. Mm-hmm. And it's basically about like, I don't know if that's the exact title, but it's basically about these like they'll have episodes where it's like how a person how they started Whole Foods. And it's like an interview with the person who started it or like how they started, you know, whatever biz- like businesses, big businesses now. And uh, one of them is Wikipedia. And he talks to the founder guy. He's like one of the most famous people on the internet, but one of the least rich because Wikipedia is kind of yeah. more like a, like the donations. Yeah. Every man's research or whatever. But it was awesome because he was describing, I never even thought of this, but I'm sure maybe if we have some older listeners, they would know that encyclopedias back in the day, you used to buy an encyclopedia set like that Kate Blanchett, like dictionary set. And the guy from Wikipedia was saying how he had like fond memories of, they had a they had an encyclopedia and then they would mail you stickers of things that had been updated. <laughs> they would literally mail you like a thing where it was like, OK, so like your encyclopedia is from before 1969. So now the entry on the moon, it talks about like how people like landed on the moon and you like oh. find that page and like put the sticker in. Yeah. Mercury is no longer non-toxic or whatever. Right. Yeah. Like all this crazy shit. And it's like, whoa, like that, like, I can't believe that was like an undertaking back in the day (laughs) of like, who has this edition? Send these stickers out. That's cool. What a job. (laughs) Yeah. But dictionaries, that's a good thing to have on your shelf. What, what, uh, What else did you see in this article? Uh, it's a fascinating article. We definitely have to make sure to like tweet it out and put it out there. Cause yeah, I mean, what I saw the, like one of the ones that jumped out at me is actually a book where it's like, wow, I like, I should be, I should do that for the podcast cause I've read it, but I just haven't really thought about doing it for the podcast yet. But when I lived in London, I read, uh, the famously sort of large novel called the Knicks. Have you ever heard about this book? Yeah. I put that down on my notes because I, I remember you talking about that one. Yeah. So in this New York Times article, you know, Anna Wintour, the famous Vogue editor, was on CBS News on April 9th. This article is really cool. It like tells you where they like appeared and what was. Yeah. yeah, It's like a late night show or some kind of other interview. Yeah. And so Anna Wintour in, you know, from her webcam, whether she's in her home office or wherever she is, is uh, she has the Knicks in the background by Nathan Hill. Um, and that book is crazy. It was like, it's definitely one of those books where it was like, you know, introduced into the market, I think as like, wow, you see a big book. It's almost like a, you know, an infinite jest type thing. Like, wow, this must be good. I wouldn't say it's on the level of infinite jest and maybe it could have, I feel like there are some books that, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but like they slip through the publishing like industry as like, okay, we're going to decide to publish like a quote unquote genius book. That's huge you know, where they like, don't like cut it down as much, or maybe, you know, it's rare. Maybe it's like authors don't really write these huge books, but every once in a while they slip through, but yeah, the Knicks is really good. It's like a family history that goes through all these different political movements. And it goes from like, 
as early as, you know, like the 1960s or even like the 1940s. And then it goes like through the 80s and up until like Occupy Wall Street. And it has a lot of stuff about like protests throughout the generations of this family. So okay. it's really yeah. good. It's a really good book. And it's interesting to know that either Anna Wintour read it or someone gave it to her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It has a cool, uh, like, speaking or whatever, relating it to fashion. I remember it had like a cool cover. Yeah. Yeah, it does have. A, maybe that's why she had it, because she designs the magazine covers and all that stuff. So maybe someone was like, hey, this this looks awesome. Let's base our some cover off of it or something. Yeah. Nice. That's, that's cool. Um, the other one I had took a note on was that uh, I know you were going to bring it up too if you saw it. That but Paul Rudd has. Mm -hmm. That's uh, what I was going to bring up. Yeah, Paul Rudd has had a uh, Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy up on his shelf. Mm -hmm. Which I feel like at this point, Jude the Obscure is becoming like one of those like it's almost like a secret society. Uh, you know, like actually, our first episode of the podcast was called Micro Cult, where it's like. I feel like Jude the Obscure at this point, like, okay, we know that Michael Ian Black did an entire podcast about Jude the Obscure, right? I think he's still go still working still on it. Still doing it. And then Paul Rudd also owns a copy of Jude the Obscure. And it keeps kind of like popping up in little places where it's like, this is one of those books where you like, you just whisper to someone at like a fancy cocktail party, like Jude the Obscure. <laughs> and, you know, and then, and then, uh, and then it's like, we're your friends for life or whatever. <laughs> but, and then, you know, I, I saw that and then I looked in the comments and a lot of people were like, I hated that book in high school. <laughs> and I was like, I wish I, I wish I got to read that in high school. <laughs> yeah. That one blew your brain open. I still haven't read it. But that like, you know, your bookshelf does not mean that you've read it. <laughs> True. <laughs> yes. book, your bookshelf means that you've been handed it. Maybe uh, Michael Ian Black gave it to Paul Rudd. <laughs> could, yeah, could be. It could be spreading through Hollywood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you pick up on anything else in this article? Uh, no. I mean, th those were the two major standouts, the Knicks yeah. and, uh, and, and yeah, Jude the Obscure. Why? What else did you see? Well, there was, no, there was a lot of stuff that I saw was like, that I was like, well, I, I don't really know what that is, but I took a, you know, I took a note to check it out later. Mm -hmm. But the main thing I was thinking of was, uh, you know, what would your Zoom background reveal at home? What's like the most prominent? thing on your bookshelf in like your home office well first of all if i had to, if my bookshelf somehow ended up in the back of my zoom that would mean that i was laying down at the foot of my bed <laughs> because uh i have one of i have one of those big ikea box like just like random like one by one squares under my tv that it's like my tv stand slash my bookshelf um so it's pretty low to the ground but if I did somehow manage to get that behind, first of all, there's an entire sec. There's one of the one by one squares on that IKEA shelf is all what's already been podcasted. Because obviously now at this point we have to organize ourselves that way. Right? Yeah, I had the stack going, but that I ran out of you know vertical space. Yeah. <laughs> to, to do that. So one like you know if I didn't do that in some way, I would get more like. If I didn't do that, I would have, I would see stuff and be like, oh, I should do that. And then find out, oh, I already covered it or you yeah. know, something. So those are like, you know, for lack of a better term, quarantined over in one section of the bookshelf. And then 
I guess there would be some spoilers because there's another pile that's my to read, like the ones that are coming up um, or in consideration for coming up. Yeah. And then unfortunately, people would probably pick out that I have that enormous new book, Ducks New Berryworth, that I told you about. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I shit all over that book on Twitter. I don't know if any of our <laughs> listeners caught that on Twitter, but I've never talked about it in the podcast before, but there's this epic new book, sort of like the Knicks or Infinite Jest or whatever, where it's like, wow, there's this new book on the market. It's a thousand pages. It's supposed to be really good. And uh, I couldn't get past a few pages because the concept of the book is that it's a it's the inner dialogue of a woman in Ohio during like the Trump era that sounds awesome to me. Like that sounds really cool. And it's supposed to be like stream of consciousness, but the gimmick behind the book is that her stream of consciousness is that she says the fact that blank every sentence, literally every, I thought it was something that was going to be a theme for maybe like, okay, it's cool. Like it's edgy that it goes on for 20 pages, but then I flipped through the rest of the book and literally every single page of this thousand page book is just sentences where she says, the fact that we're recording a podcast, the fact that the fact that I'm watching CNN news, the fact that my son stubbed his toe, like all these things. And I was like, I can't read this. I cannot read this. <laughs> yeah, I think I asked you if you could somehow if we could get the ebook version and then control F and, you know, delete all of those and see how much how many right. pages it. How much is left? What I would do is that I would do law of averages. Maybe I should like do the calculation on Twitter or something where it's like I take five pages, like or like one, even one page, figure out the word count, then subtract the word count from the fact that. And yeah. then it would be, you know, sort of that law of averages that we were talking about with the dictionaries where you would just get whittled down. It's like, okay, this like supposedly epic book is actually only, you know. 300 pages. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm, so I'm looking back uh, at, I'm sitting at my office right now. So if I, if I popped open my uh, laptop screen, I think you'd have to zoom pretty far, but my bookshelf is behind me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the only, if I look back, the only thing that really sticks out to me, there's a couple of things I got. The only book that's like yellow kind of is uh, what's it called? A Brief History of Seven Killings right? Yeah. Marlon James. That one sticks out. Uh, that would probably get caught. Um, Lonesome Dove. It's like this <laughs> really thick Western book. I can't I forget the name of the author. but uh, And then I see Thinner. <laughs> thinner? Uh, What's Thinner? Uh, Bachman uh, or Stephen uh, King. Oh, so, right. Yeah, Thinner, yeah. And that's only because it kind of reflects. <laughs> like they use that kind of shiny font on the side. Right. That's about it. Then you got um, a Bulbasaur thing right. and a signed hockey puck and uh, a Kira bike <laughs> on my bookshelf. <laughs> so that, that would be it. But uh, that would be it for books. Yeah. I, it begs the question, like, would it be fair? You know, like, like you're, so you connect on the Zoom call and then all of a sudden the New York Times is like, yeah, this is like the bookshelves, your, how your bookshelf represents you. Now I feel like almost exposed, you know, like yeah. you got to You got to front your best books or your, <laughs> or your, you know, or your organization or people are just going to shame you. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine getting caught, like, say you're like Paul Rudd or whatever, and they see like 
um, acting for dummies or whatever. On <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, someone could give that to him as a gag gift. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, yeah, it's like that. It's like the whole idea of, you know, if someone goes through the music on your Spotify or back in the day on your iPod, it's like, you don't want to have to be explaining anything like, Oh, it seems like you listen to a lot of Katy Perry or, you know, like something yeah. like that. It's like, uh, you know, got to put up a front with your bookshelf and zoom. Exactly. So, yeah. I thought the ones from Prince Charles were kind of funny because like the bookshelf behind him is like weirdly historical. You know, it's like a 1959 Australian novel or a biography of the 18th century English painter. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed a little curated. Yeah, possibly. curated. Possibly curated. Yeah, yeah. You, you never know. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Let us know what would be in your Zoom background. Yeah. Or if you just turn on one of those filters. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So this is episode odd number episode. So I'm, I'm going first for the yep. uh, 55 book reports. All right. Uh, so I, I talked about, or for my, I feel like I talked about WebMD, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like throwing up. That was one of the common questions. Have you ever freaked yourself out by reading WebMD when you kind of start to get sick or have a nagging injury or something like that? Yep. I, um, I stay away. I a hundred percent because I've learned my lesson and kind of be like, you know, you, it's like one of those things where it's like, Oh, I kind of have a headache. And then you like Google it. And it's like people with cancer sometimes have headaches. And you're like, yeah. So dumb. Exactly. But that, that is an internet phenomenon of, you know, Googling your symptoms and I'm guilty of it too. You know, it, it's called uh cyberchondria, an unofficial term, but yeah, I've been guilty of it before. I'm sure it's happening a lot now with, you know, coronavirus and all that. So how old do you think that concept of anxious self-diagnosis is? How common do I think it is? Uh, how old do you think it is that, that concept? Oh. Um, I mean, now that you're asking the question, you got to think back to like how access of information, but probably pretty long. I don't know about looking at like a book or some sort of source of information, but probably a lot of people just off the cuff are like, I know what's wrong with me. Yeah. The self-diagnosis. Um, well, I, yeah, I assumed that it was relatively new, you know, because of the, the wealth of medical information we have at our fingertips now. Mm-hmm. And especially with something like WebMD and Google. But the book that I read this week showed me that it's at least 130 years old. Wow. Uh, and I'm just going to, and this is right off the bat from this book. So I'm going to read the first couple pages. Okay. Might struggle here. There were four of us, George and William Samuel Harris and myself and Montmorency. We were sitting in my room smoking and talking about how bad we were. Bad from a medical point of view, I mean, of course. We were all feeling seedy, and we were getting quite nervous about it. Harris said that he felt such extraordinary fits of giddiness come over him at times that he hardly knew what he was doing. And then George said that he had fits of giddiness too and hardly knew what he was doing. With me, it was my liver that was out of order. I knew it was my liver that was out of order because I had just been reading a patent liver pill circular in which were detailed various symptoms by which a man could tell when his liver was out of order. I had them all. It is the most extraordinary thing, but I never read a patent 
medicine advertisement without being impelled to the conclusion that I'm suffering from the particular disease therein dealt with in its most virulent form. The diagnosis seems in every case to correspond exactly with all the sensations that I have ever felt. I remember going to the British Museum one day to read up the treatment for some slight ailment of which I had a touch. Hay fever, I fancy it was. I got down the book and read all I came to read. And then in an unthinking moment, I idly turned the leaves and began to indolently study diseases generally. I forgot, I forget which was the first distemper I plunged into some fearful, devastating scourge, I know. And before I had glanced half down the list of promontory symptoms, it was borne in upon me that I had fairly got it. Hmm. I sat for a while frozen with horror. And then in the listlessness, listlessness of despair, I again turned over the pages. I came to typhoid fever, read the symptoms, discovered that I had typhoid fever, must have had it for months without knowing it, wondered what else I had got, turned up St. Vitus's dance, found, as I expected, that I had that too, began to get interested in my case and determined to sift it to the bottom, and so started alphabetically, read up ague, and learned that I was sickening for it, and that the acute stage would commence in about another fortnight. Bright's disease, I was relieved to find, I had only in a modified form, and so far as that was concerned, I might live for years. Cholera I had, with severe complications, <laughs> and diphtheria seemed to have been born with, I plotted conscientiously through the 26 letters, and the only malady I conclude I had not got was housemaid's knee. I felt rather hurt about this at first. It seemed somehow to be a sort of slight. Why hadn't I got housemaid's knee? Why this invidious reservation? After a while, however, less grasping feelings prevailed. I reflected that I had every other known malady in the pharmacology, and I grew less selfish and determined to do without housemaid's knee. Gout in its most malignant stage, it would appear, had seized me without my being aware of it. In zymosis, I had evidently been suffering with from boyhood. There were no more diseases after zymosis, so I concluded that there was nothing else the matter with me. I sat and pondered. I thought what an interesting case I must be from a medical point of view. What an acquisition I should be to a class. Students would have no need to walk the hospitals if they had me. I was a hospital in myself. All they need do would be to walk around me and after that, take their diploma. Then I wondered how long I had to live. I tried to examine myself. I felt my pulse. I could not at first feel any pulse at all. Then all of a sudden it seemed to start off. I pulled out my watch and timed it. I made it to 147 to the minute. I tried to feel my heart. I could not feel my heart. It had stopped beating. I have since been induced to come to the opinion that it must have been there all the time and must have been beating, but I cannot account for it. I patted myself all over my front from what I call my waist up to my head, and I went a bit round each side and a little, little way up the back, but I could not feel or hear anything. I tried to look at my tongue. I stuck it out as far as it ever would go, and I shut one eye and tried to examine it with the other. I could only see the tip, and the only thing that I could gain from that was to feel more certain than before that I had scarlet fever. <laughs> I walked into that reading room, a happy, healthy man. I crawled out a decrepit wreck. I went to my medical man. He is an old chum of mine and feels my pulse and looks at my tongue and talks about the weather all for nothing when I fancy I'm ill. So I thought I would do him a good turn by going to him now. What a doctor wants, I said, is practice. He shall have me. He will get more practice out of me than out of seven, 1,700 of your ordinary commonplace patients with only one or two diseases each. So I went straight up and saw him and he said, well, what's the matter with you? I said, 
I will not take up your time, dear boy, with telling you what is the matter with me. Life is brief, brief, and you might pass away before I had finished, but I will tell you what is not the matter with me. I have not got housemaid's knee. Why I have not got housemaid's knee, I cannot tell you, but the fact remains that I have not got it. Everything else, however, I have got. Hmm. And I told him how I came to discover it all. Then he opened me and looked down me and clutched hold of my wrist and hit me over the chest when I wasn't expecting it. Cowardly thing to do, I call it. And immediately afterwards, butted me with the side of his head. After that, he sat down and wrote out, uh, wrote out a prescription and folded it up and gave it to me. And I put it in my pocket and went out. I took it to the nearest chemist and handed it in. The man read and then handed it back. He said he didn't keep it. I said, you're a chemist? He said, I am a chemist. If I was a cooperative uh, stores and family hotel combined, I might be able to oblige you. Being only a chemist hampers me. I read the prescription. It ran one pound beefsteak with one pint bitter beer every six hours, one 10 mile walk every morning, one bed at 11 sharp every night, and don't stuff up your head with things you don't understand. <laughs> That's quite a prescription. <laughs> I'll stop there. Also, this is like the worst book to read for someone who is susceptible to that <laughs> WebMD syndrome. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the cyberchondria. Yep. But anyways, so that that was the uh, the first couple pages of the 1889 novel Three Men in a Boat. Oh my god, I've heard about this book. I have heard about this book, but I've never like I've heard about its like reputation, but I've never read it. Yeah, so this it's supposed is, to be hilarious, right? It is, yeah. Um, by and it's written by Jerome K. Jerome. <laughs> also, hilarious. <laughs> that that always stuck out to me when I saw it. You know. Do you think you could pull off uh, Trevor J. Trevor? Trevor J. Trevor, maybe, maybe. Mine would only work if my middle name was a was a E, because then <laughs> I could be Mark E. Mark. All right, that would work. Uh, but yeah, I found this because it's often on lists of the funniest novels, and you know, sometimes even on lists of the best novels. Mm -hmm. And um, since it's so old now, it's public domain, so you know, anyone can go over and grab it on the. You know, Project Gutenberg or wherever else you can get. I think get. that's probably where I had heard about it. Is yeah. that I was like searching for free books and then it's like one of the best is this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty famous and it's never been out of print. A uh, bunch of film and TV adaptations. Uh, essentially, it's about three friends. Like I kind of listed at the very beginning, you got the narrator who's Jerome, mm -hmm. uh, you got Harris and George, and then the dog, Montmorency. Like one of the uh, kind of alternate titles of this book is Three Men in a Boat and then in parentheses to say nothing of the dog. Nice. But Montmorency, that's a kind of interesting name. Uh, <laughs> but so so they are just, this is how they, the book starts. They're talking about how they're all sick, even though they're not, or how they're, they eventually come to the conclusion that they're overworked. And <laughs> you like, you know, there are enough context clues to tell you that they are not overworked, <laughs> but... <laughs> So they decide decide to go on a boating trip down the uh, the River Thames to escape the monotony of their lives and you know to get us a little R and R or some adventure. So they rent a boat in uh, Kingston and they head on down the river. And so, longtime SBR listeners will remember an early episode where we talked about the concept of a a dude camping trip. Yes, dude camping, where where you head out into the open and you 
definitely didn't prepare enough food or any sort of luxury. Uh, yep. When we have about 5% of the stuff that you should have brought with you and you kind of uh, laissez-faire or whatever about the whole thing, <laughs> that's basically what happens here. Right down to like the shared experience that you and I talked about on that past episode of trying to set up a tent when it's raining. Like mm -hmm. they, they did that as well. And um, very funny author here, Jerome K. Jerome. Nice. And, you know, so much of this book reads like a, uh, like a Three Stooges sketch or something <laughs> like, a, <laughs> you know, there's some physical comedy. There's, um, he is a very witty, sarcastic narrative voice that sometimes kind of makes you forget about how old the book really is. Mm hmm. And uh, to be fair, though, you know, there are dry, unfunny parts as well. But for the most part, it kind of keeps rolling. Right. And there really is almost no point to go further into the plot. Like, all you need to know is that for the most part, the humor here kind of holds up. <laughs> like, in the way that, like, you know, some, like, Looney Tunes gags are always going to be funny or whatever. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And I would say it's also very much in the style of British humor. So what would you define as like British humor? Because uh, I, I got my own here, but I'll wait to hear yours. Yeah, Spending, I mean, British humor is... Spent some time there, so. British humor is like famously described as like very dry, um, always very witty and kind of like a twist of phrase and then like watching you squirm as you figure out exactly what they said. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then on top of that, usually just they're like absolutely brutal with like shitting on each other. Kind of like no, there's like no any, nothing is acceptable. I mean, everything is acceptable among friends, but like anything that you do is like, no. You're nothing's in, out of bounds. Yeah, no. nothing's out of bounds. Yeah, I mean, I remember like hanging out at like a bar that I used to frequent in London. And it's like, I told this like old group, like group of older English people that I was like, oh, I'm going to see the cliffs of, I'm going to Dover. I'm going to go see the cliffs of Dover. Like I've always wanted to. And then they just like, they're like, Dover, why? It's a shithole. You're an idiot. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, but like it's famous and I want to go see it. And they're like, please. And that, that kind of leads into like uh, what I myself kind of, uh, defined as what you know what british humor means to me and, and i think it's very much exaggerating the scale of things mm -hmm. you know taking small things and making it like that crazy like oh dover you know whatever there might be some nice things about it but like nah it's the it's <laughs> hell on earth <laughs> uh but yeah that's that's really what this is um it's misadventures hilarious misadventures nice. and um, a lot of parts are definitely very funny and I want to just, I know I read a lot, a lot already, but I kind of want to read this other section right from the middle of the, the boat trip that had me laughing pretty hard. Cool. Once they're on the, on the water. We pulled up in the backwater just below Cookham and had tea. And when we were through the lock, it was evening. A stiffish breeze had sprung up in our favor for a wonder. For as a rule on the river, the wind is always dead against you, whatever way you go. It is against you in the morning when you start for a day's trip, and you pull for a long distance, thinking how easy it will be to come back with the sail. Then, after tea, the wind veers round, and you have to pull hard in its teeth all the way home. 
When you forget to take the sail at all, then the wind is consistently in your favor both ways. But there, the world is only a probation, and man was born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. This evening, however, they had evidently made a mistake and had put the wind round at our back instead of in our face. We kept very quiet about it and got the sail up quickly before they found it out. And then we spread ourselves about the boat in thoughtful attitudes, and the sail bellied out and strained and grumbled at the mast, and the boat flew. I steered. There is no more thrilling sensation I know of than sailing. It comes as near to flying as man has got to yet, except in dreams. And yeah, this was before airplanes. Um, the, the wings of the Russian wind seem to be bearing you onward. You know not where. You are no longer the slow, plodding, puny thing of clay creeping torturously upon the ground. You are a part of nature. Your heart is throbbing against hers. Her glorious arms are around you, raising you up against her heart. Your spirit is at one with hers. Your limbs grow light. The voices of the air are singing to you. The earth seems far away and little, and the clouds so close above your head are brothers, and you stretch your arms to them. We had the river to ourselves, except that far in the distance we could see a fishing punt, moored in midstream, on which three fishermen sat, and we skimmed over the water and passed the wooded banks, and no one spoke. I was steering. As we drew nearer, we could see that the three, fish three men fishing seemed old and solemn-looking men. They sat on three chairs in the punt and watched intently their lines. And the red sunset threw a mystic light upon the waters and tinged with fire the towering woods and made a golden glory of the piled up clouds. It was an hour of deep enchantment, of ecstatic hope and longing. The little sail stood out against the purple sky. The gloaming lay around us, wrapping the world in rainbow shadows, and behind us crept the night. We seemed like knights of some old, old legend sailing across some mystic lake into the unknown realm of twilight, unto the great land of the sunset. We did not go into the realm of twilight. We went slap into that punt where those three old men were fishing. We did not know what had happened at first because the sail shut out the view, but from the nature of the language that rose up upon the evening air, we gathered that we had come into the neighborhood of human beings and that they were vexed and discontented. Harris let the sail down and then we saw what had happened. We had knocked these three old gentlemen off their chairs into a general heap at the bottom of their boat, and they were now slowly and painfully sorting themselves out from each other and picking fish off themselves. And as they worked, they cursed us, not with a common cursory curse, but with long, carefully thought out, comprehensive curses that embraced the whole of our career and went away into the distant future and included all our relations and covered everything connected with us, good, substantial curses. Harris told them that they ought to be grateful for a little excitement sitting there fishing all day. And he also said that he was shocked and grieved to hear men their age give way to temper. So, but it not, do, but it did not do any good. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So he, like he does that a lot where he kind of builds up this sort of thing and then just pulls the rug out from under you. You know, he's setting up this majestic scene and then it turns out that they were actually like running into another boat. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, you know, very funny read. Definitely recommend it. Um, there's a lot of kind of instances like that where, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just very wit very witty and everything. Uh, I want to jump into my one-star review here to close it out. Nice. Who hated this book? <laughs> uh, user Close Enough says... Boring, boring, and boring. And then they added uh, two monkey emojis where the monkeys like got their hands kind of over their ears or whatever. 
<laughs> boring, boring. <laughs> nice. All right, that was awesome. I mean, I've I've definitely seen that book in like those free places before. So um, yeah, yeah, that's how I definitely learned about it. But uh, you know, a free read is a, is an awesome thing. So yeah, and there's a sequel too that I'm gonna uh, read eventually. It's uh, Three Men on the on the Bummel, which is about um, a I think it's about a bike bicycle trip or something. They take another trip. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. They take another <laughs> trip. That's fun. All right. Yeah. So I'm guessing that this week you probably know which book I'm doing. If you have faith in my ability to read <laughs> and read quickly. I think, I think I know. Okay. So my illusions are fully lost. Yeah. You lost. And, them. I, and I have finished the lost illusions technically trilogy, but I finished the one, what we now consider in our day and age, one book, Lost Illusions by Balzac. Um, this third section, which was published in 1843, is called An Inventor's Tribulations. Sometimes it's translated from French into An, inventor, an Inventor's Sufferings. And I actually learned through uh, research for the podcast that it was originally called Eve and David, which are the two kind of like there were they were characters in the first book of Lost Illusions. Then they're kind of like in the, the like in the very very background, like barely mentioned in the second book, and then it swings around again for them to be like kind of the main characters of this third book. Um, so it was originally called Eve and David, but it's now called an Inventor's Struggles or an Inventor's Tribulations because uh, this is kind of like a cool little detail. It was never published like that, but one of Balzac's like personal copies of it, he had like superimposed like on the cover like a different title yeah so basically they had found like among his documents or like among his personal collection like no it's not called even david it's called this <laughs> and then people were like okay well respect balzac versus you know like the public like some like publishing house in 1843 or whatever was probably like no we want to call it this um so i mean the third book actually did to be honest, like with like with the start of the part three, the third book, I was like, I might have started to understand what most people were complaining about in the other in their one star reviews where it was like, OK, like like I mean, not to put you on the spot, but like what would you have like remembered of the first two books? Uh, the young kind of upstart guy who mm -hmm. takes advantage of people and right. he moves to Paris. And then I believe in Paris, I can't remember what he found in Paris. <laughs> he like he becomes like a journalist. Yeah, and he sort of becomes like, an overnight sensation, right? Yeah, he becomes, yeah, at one point he becomes an overnight sensation. But he, in, in, in like broader strokes, he basically finds like two groups of people. At first, he finds like a group of people who are willing to suffer for their art and are basically like legitimate artists who save their money and band together and like aren't frivolous. And then he finds the second group of journalists who are kind of more like insane Parisians who are like, you can spend all your money on one dinner because if you write an article tomorrow, you know, robbing pay Peter to pay Paul kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Or it's like, you can just live this crazy ass lifestyle that's like unearned. And he's like, okay, I'm definitely, he kind of like, 
he's a weaker kind of will that he's just like, well, I don't see the disadvantages of this crazy lifestyle. So that's what I'm going to do. And then of course, by the end of the book, he gets like spit out the other end of that lifestyle. He ends up owing people a bunch of money. The actress that he falls in love with that he steals from, you know, like another, um, you know, like it's his mistress. So like he steals from like this other guy who's kind of like a more senior person in Parisian society. She passes away, like she dies. And of course, like once there's not that link there, it's like, oh, I was living in this fancy apartment with all this nice furniture. Then she dies and I'm like totally screwed. Like the, you know, I'm back to square one. Yeah. Um, what's interesting is, so then going into book three, it kind of resets into some events that we already know that main character guy, his name is Lucian and it right, it kind of resets. And I actually learned a new literary term in media res in medias res. Have you ever heard that? Is that Latin? Yeah, it's something in Latin, but basically it means, um, it's like a plot thing that we're very used to now as a modern audience. But two it, dates at the same time. No, That's not two, not not parallel action, but kind of like it means to like be thrown into the middle of a story, and then the rest of the story is like finding out like what happened in the beginning and the end. Oh, okay, yeah, kind of thing. So you know, like a you know all like so many modern movies and stuff. Like Lynch does that and stuff like that, and just like you know cyclical storylines where you just are in the middle of it. So book three of Lost Illusions and a little bit of book two as well is basically like you kind of reset in time and it's like, Hey, remember when Lucian did that one thing in Paris? Well, this was like what reverberated out from him doing that. Yeah. So something that wasn't super important in book two actually becomes like the main, you know, crux of the, of like one of the tent poles of the storyline in book three. Um, the thing about it is sort of like, you you go back and it's like Lucian at one time in Paris did this thing where he like signed these like he kind of like forged some like basically like oh I can borrow money from this guy because of this that and the other thing and it's like not very like remember how I was explaining to you how like the system of credit and like money in general looks very like you know it's very foreign to us mm -hmm. where it's like you can write these notes and borrow that at a, at a credit of you know. 10,000 francs over a year, like all this other weird kind of interest stuff that flies past you. So you end up kind of figuring out in the third book that what Lucian did was that he signed these like credit bills, basically being like, my brother-in-law back in my hometown will totally pay this like $2,000 franc debt for me. Oh God. He had a and co then, un unwilling co-signer. Yeah, unwilling co-signer. And then it kind of like flashes back to them. And basically what's been happening this whole time is that his brother-in-law is trying to pull off this like invention where he's trying to invent a new way to make paper that would be like 10 times cheaper than what is currently in the market. And of course, at, at this time, like in France and like Parisian society, you know, like the newspaper is like your iPhone, you know, like everyone consumes it. So the manufacturing of paper is like an intense business. So David, his, his brother-in-law is basically like legitimately, he figures out like how to do this and how to pull it off. But he's 
buried by so many of the debts kind of created not only by his ignorance, but also by his brother, like his brother-in-law Lucian being like a piece of shit in Paris. Uh, you know, Balzac has some pretty good like things where it's like, you know, society hasn't like changed as much as we think. Like, you know, like if someone, you know, like the idea of like, if someone sues you or you eventually like go to court with someone, you basically like both parties have lost because it costs so much. Yeah. It's like what begins as, you know, like a 2000 pound debt eventually gets like embroiled with these two brothers that are also in the town and they want to see David's invention. They want to either take it from him or see his success destroyed. So it's like, oh, like this guy is in financial trouble. So what we're going to do is like employ the help of this lawyer and this other guy. And we're just going to like fuck them over so much that 2000 francs becomes like 14,000 based on like fees and stuff. Yeah. So they kind of play this like horrible game where it's like, just this awful like combination of like business and politics and like blah, blah. So the drama picked back up. Like basically when it started out, I was like, oh, maybe this is why people hate it. Cause like the end is very like, and then he wanted to invent paper and you're like, what? Like, who cares? <laughs> but it all ramps back up into style. And of course, like somewhere near like the last third of the final book, Lucian also like comes back to town and he's like, I can totally fix everything because I'm a smart ass Parisian now who has like nice clothes, even though I have no money. And he ends up fucking up things even more. Like it's like really crazy. And it, and it has all these twists and turns where it's like one person is pawing against another. And I think I mentioned before in my review of like Balzac has this like incredible talent to like set up. He takes a long time to set up these situations so I could see where people get bored. But then eventually when you do get to an actual scene or dialogue, you are very aware of like every party's motivation, like within like a given situation. So it's like the guy who's the inventor is like a humble sort of like, I think I know what I'm doing. And then he's surrounded by like 20 vipers of like, <laughs> this guy wants this and this guy thinks this and like all these crazy things. And obviously it like comes to a head with like all these, you know, like, oh, I'm promised to marry the lawyer. The lawyer gets promised that he's going to marry this one woman so that like those brothers, you know, are going to fuck over David even more. And his long suffering wife is the one who like tries to, you know, mix some sense into things and try to like get a hold of everything. But eventually he has like a legitimate arrest warrant on his head where he has to like go into hiding. So it's all these twists and turns basically about the publishing industry, but also just owing people money. Um, and it's really kind of fascinating too, because obviously it's like Balzac has all this commentary uh, in his typical style of like the way that things are in life back then. And a lot of it kind of like matches up to what we think of now um, of just life and politics in general. But the end of the book is a little bit of like, it's funny because we're in like, we kind of make fun of things like this now, but it is sort of like an ex machina, you know, that term mm -hmm. where it's like something comes out of nowhere to kind of just conclude everything. It wasn't exactly like some happy ending that Balzac is interested, like, Oh, David and Eve and Lucian, like everything turns out. Okay. But something cool that I think I, I can't really tell. I didn't do enough research in my shitty book report to know if this like comes like, if this blooms other things into um, 
you know, because the whole series is called The Human Comedy, which is like over 90 novels of like whatever. So I did learn a little bit of research that one of Lucian's like random, like minor friends in Paris is this guy, Rastignac. And he's sort of like on the outskirts of this novel, but he's the actual like main character of The Human Comedy. And he appears like in over 20 of the novels. So it's really cool how those things are all like threaded throughout kind of like, you know, the Dark Tower, Stephen King kind of thing. Nice. Yeah. Um, so I found that about, and I, and I thought maybe the conclusion kind of wraps up in some other way. Um, but basically what happens is Lucian, he fucks up things so bad, like even in his hometown, he isn't able to save David from his debts and he fucks everything up so bad that he writes this letter where he's like, I'm just going to go kill myself. Like, I'm just going to like leave this letter with my sister. I'm going to go find like a nice peaceful pond that I know of in the countryside. And I'm going to throw myself in there, weighed down with rocks and just die. And when he's on the road to go do that in some of his best Parisian clothes, he meets this like almost like Yoda like person who's like <laughs> who's like a priest from Spain. And he's like, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, you know, whatever. This is what's been going on. And, you know, my brother in laws in all this dick because I'm a huge asshole. And I tried to like, you know, I tried to make Paris work, but I'm just not as cool as I thought I was. And he's like, he just gives him this like long like speech about like life is not, you know, what you think it is. And then, and at the time, Lucian is like in his 20s or something. So this older guy is just like, you're an idiot. Like you want to throw your life away, but you, you're like so young. Like, you know, those kind of lectures that you get from older people where it's like, you know, you get an F on an exam and high school and it's like the worst thing in the world. And they're like, it's so meaningless Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like in the grand scheme of things. So he gives him one of those speeches, but something that he, he basically Balzac just like wants to drop like a bunch of like knowledge, you know, mic drop a bunch of knowledge on people, knowledge bombs at the end of this trilogy. And I thought that this was one of the best, uh, one of the best things that I thought was some cool advice that, you know, Balzac is speaking through the years from 1843 to us. So this is a short paragraph. Just drink more coffee. Yeah, yeah, just drink coffee. So this guy, this priest from Spain, he's in a carriage with Lucian. He's like, don't kill yourself. So he's explaining to him how life works. And he says, uh, an act is no longer anything in itself. It is wholly in the idea that others may form of it. Hence, young man, another precept. Present a fine exterior. Hide the inside of your life and make a brilliant show of your externals. Discretion. That motto of ambitious minds is that of my cloth, but make it yours. Great men commit almost as many vile acts as poor men, but they commit them in the dark. They parade their virtues in the sunshine and remain great men. Small men display their virtue in the dark and expose their baseness to the light of day and are despised. You have hidden your greatness and exhibited your sores. You took an actress from your mistress and lived with her in her house publicly. That was not reprehensible for you were both of you absolutely free, but you ran a tilt against the ideas of the world and you lost the respect, which the world gives only to those who obey its laws. So like he gives him this long lecture, everything that you, it kind of, you know, it doesn't like he, Lucian doesn't tell him his whole life story and then you have to read it again. It just like assumes that like, okay, this guy knows everything that I've read so far. And it's really good. Cause he basically just like breaks everything down. He's like, don't be stupid. Like, that do this, do that, hide that you're a freak, hide that you're a loser. Like everyone does it. And you just think that you're like the, like the person who is like the first person that this all happened to. And he's like, sure, you made some mistakes. You could have become this, that, and the other thing with like your, all your advantages, 
But from now on, you're just going to become my clerk. And by the way, I'm crazy rich. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to have like a second chance at Parisian life because I'm just I'm just going to solve all your problems. So that's like sort of like the ex machina where it's like Lucian doesn't end up killing himself just because he gets this like new opportunity. Um, so that's crazy funny. But also another thing that I think, you know, if I were to knock one star off of my five star review of Lost Illusions, because obviously I'm a huge fan of it. And it like gave me this window into post Napoleon life, which is totally what that was Balzac's goal from the beginning. You know, like he's just going to chronicle like this entire history, which is basically his lifespan. Yeah. Um, if I were to knock one star off of it, it's like the third book, you feel a lot of tension for Eve and David who Lucian fucked over. But towards the very end, you sort of start to realize like, so first of all, David's father is this guy who like owns a vineyard outside of the town. And he's kind of a dick too, where like David's like, you could pay this $2,000 debt and then I'd be fine. And there's stuff in the first book where it's like his dad is an asshole and like he makes him buy his printing press from him for like triple the cost. And like, he still makes him pay rent. Like he pays rent to his own dad and stuff like that. Yeah. And his dad is just kind of like a dick overall, but he's this rich guy and you know, all these problems like befall even David and it, like the worst of the worst happens to them. Like he gets in jail and like all these things. But then in the end, it's sort of like, okay, so then like David gets out on bail and then like the conclusion of the book is like, and then like a few years later, his dad died and they, you know, inherited his vineyard and everything is fine. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, he kind of gets screwed out of his own invention. And that is like something that, you know, maybe Balzac was going towards or like these inventors, like it actually is really hard to be an inventor and then also hang on to the glory, which mm -hmm. is what David was trying to do all along. Like he went through all these like debts and everything because he knew the whole time that these brothers were fucking him over and they just wanted his paper invention. But he's like, if I just keep holding on a little bit longer, I'll be a millionaire instead of, you know, just getting out of my debts. So he's trying to like play the long game. And in the end, the invention kind of like gets taken away from him. And I think Balzac is trying to say that sort of like, you know, the idea of like Steve Jobs versus Steve Wozniak. Yeah. Where it's like the businessman who's at the front, who knows the marketing and everything. But then there's like the OG who like really like did the work. Yeah, exactly. So he's kind of like shining a light on David being like, that's ultimately what happened to him, which I guess is sad. But then, you know, the final part of the book is like, and now they have a really nice house and he still has an <laughs> income. He still has an income from his invention because he still got a piece of the pie, like a little bit. Not everyone knows who he is, but they have a beautiful vineyard and they took over his dad's vineyard and, you know, everything's fine. <laughs> so it's like wow i was feeling a lot of tension for these two basically for no reason and to be honest he made the tension even though you knew that that was there like logically you would be like well old his dad is a dickhead and it's just gonna die and then they can do whatever they want with the money you know, <laughs> like, he's not gonna give it to someone else and you knew that the whole time but i guess also reading it like a book so far in the past you didn't know if that's how things worked or like if that's you know what was gonna happen um, so yeah, I mean, I finished Lost Illusions. I mean, I think it's, it's a tribute to Balzac, how readable he is that basically, you know, I spread it over three podcast episodes, but basically in one month, I read a 600 page book from the 1830s. <laughs> um, that's pretty awesome. And that way, you know, like with this podcast, like that's a risk. Like when I picked up Lost Illusions, I was like, 
this isn't going to work. Like <laughs> I can't read this in one week, maybe not even a third of it in one week. And then, you know, like we're very wary of long books nowadays, aren't we? Definitely. Definitely. So I picked up Lost Origins and I was like, I don't know, but I wasn't, it wasn't that bad. Like I, I did find myself the idea, that whole idea that like David Foster Wallace brings up of like basically books are now competing with like TV and your phone and like whatever. And I did find myself being like, I want to read Lost Illusions rather than watch something or like do something. Nice. So that's, that's, a, that's huge. That's huge. That's yeah. like power. And um, yeah, I mean, I wanted to read it and the characters were, you know, Lucian's hilarious asshole. David, the inventor is an ignorant loser. Um, you know, total, all these archetypes worked very well. So I thought it was awesome. Um, I don't have nice. a one star review because in the beginning of the trilogy, I did a one star review and I'll just say it covers all of them. I still right. disagree. Yeah. No one really reviews like an individual yeah. because now we bind it all as one book. It's just kind of like, honestly, I don't know how down I am with that. Like it would, it would seem like a bit like more like manageable. I wonder if there's ever like any, like in the same style of like Kate, Kate Blanchett's million dictionaries. I wonder if anyone has done like the human comedy released in the size that it was released in. So in, in other words, <laughs> like lost illusions would be three books instead of one. Yeah. Because honestly, even though that would be an entire bookshelf of however many 90 novels that the human comedy is, I'm ready to read the rest of it. Like the fact that I found out that Rastignac is actually the main character is kind of fascinating because he has like nothing to do with this book. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. Nice. Yeah. Sounds good. Yep. Another uh, literary giant tackled. Tackled. Yeah. And, and honestly, I'll do it again because there's other throughout the notes from the Barnes and Noble edition that I had. And also just like, you know, the, they did like a chronology in the beginning and there's stuff that he published after this that, you know, it has like a little footnote being like, that's also considered a masterpiece. And it's like, hey, Lost Illusions was a masterpiece. So I'm ready. Nice. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, so this is typically the area where we would jump right into our uh, thanks for listening, listening spiel. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to like after getting some feedback, you know, <laughs> wanted to add just a, a little bit of something Conclusion. to signify the ending. Yeah. A, a retrospective, maybe you would call it. Uh, mm -hmm. And I don't know if this is going to be what we go with from now on, but I thought today I would just try uh, summarizing, you know, what I learned today and then ask you the same. <laughs> so what I learned today, I guess I would say was that, uh, Lost Illusions Part 3 was originally called Eve and David. Nice. So what? It, so I have to do a short clip of what I learned? Yeah, what'd you learn? Hmm. I learned <laughs> that... It could be from your own thing. Or no, mine, I, or no I learned that unprepared dude camping is a universal, um, a universal concept. <laughs> 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 that men have been striking out into journeys ill-prepared probably throughout all of human history. Oh yeah, <laughs> the un the unprepared dude camping. Give that episode a listen. I think it was it's in the like the first five episodes. I think. Yes. 
Well, that's uh, that's it. Uh, I guess we'll do instead of the abrupt. I'm now bringing it to the abrupt conclusion, but we, <laughs> but we are going to start doing some tail end what we learned today type stuff. Maybe some uh, Jeopardy music reviews or something like that. Everything is uh, everything is in in the cards. But uh, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Shitty Book Reports. Um, you can find us once a week. We are not committing to a day anymore. You can find us once a week on uh, SoundCloud, Spotify, Instagram, Stitcher, Twitter, um, you know, everywhere where podcasts are not sold because we're completely free. And uh, hopefully we'll see you again next time. Yeah. And some some weeks are longer than others. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) See ya. Bye-bye.